Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. Welcome to Theories of the Third Kind. My name is Aaron, and I am one of your hosts today. There's another host that is joining me, Daniel's son. Yo. Now, real quick, before we start today's episode, I just want to say that if you would like to support the show, then there's a few ways that you could do that. One of the ways is Patreon. Each week, we release a Patreon-exclusive episode that only Patreon supporters can get access to. To sign up, it's only $5 a month, which is only 16 cents a day. Not only do you get an extra episode per week for that $5, but you also get access to our entire back catalog of past Patreon episodes. In total, we have over 101 extra Patreon episodes, which is a lot of extra hours for you all to listen to. Now, to see this full list of Patreon episodes, just go to our website, theoriesofthethirdkind.com, click on the Patreon Episodes tab, and there you will see the entire list of Patreon-exclusive episodes that we have published. Also today, we added another Patreon-exclusive episode, which is over the GATE program. Now, if you don't know what that is, well, when you were in elementary, middle school, did you get taken out of your classroom, placed into a windowless room, and given various random tests? If so, then this episode is perfect for you. So you get access to that episode, as well as all of the others, for just $5. Now, if you can't afford a Patreon membership, but you want to help us out, then you can leave us a written review on iTunes or on Spotify, and it helps us out a lot. However, don't feel pressured to leave us one. If you don't want to, that's fine. We just want you guys, girls, aliens, reptilians, Bigfoot, Sasquatches, Chupacabras, ghosts, Illuminati members, underground lizard people, whoever or whatever you are, to enjoy the show. And that is the end of the announcements. So today's episode is Declassified Documents number two. So how this episode will go today is that we'll talk about what are declassified documents, and then me and Daniel each have picked two of our favorite declassified documents that we're going to discuss, and then we have two bonus ones that we're going to discuss afterwards, and then we're going to go into, you know, on the scene for the week, and then shout-outs. So with that being said, uh, I guess let's roll into today's episode. And yes, uh, this is Declassified Documents number two, by the way. We had previously done an episode over Declassified Documents back in January of 2021, and that was a uh, Patreon-exclusive episode. I think it was, what, episode number 37 or something like that, Dan? Yes, 37. Yeah. So if you want to check out the first Declassified Document episode... Go over to Patreon, sign up, it's only five bucks. It's episode number 37. It's really good. We talk about World War II Monopoly boards, the Iran Flight 655, the Earth Parallel Dimension, Project Sunshine, Project 1794, and Project Acoustic Kitty. So all those great declassified documents we talked about on that episode. However, on today's episode, we've got all new declassified documents. But before we get into those, Let's actually discuss what are declassified documents. Now, Dan, can you explain that to us? So, just like in part one of declassified documents, we told you what they were, but if you don't remember, let us remind you, or let us bring you up to speed. Declassified documents are documents that were previously classified as a secret. Only certain individuals with clearances could view these documents when they were previously classified. So after many years, these documents eventually become declassified, 
and released to the public in various ways. Now, some of these ways is uh, individuals going through various government steps to get access to this information, which, of course, is called the Freedom of Information Act. Or sometimes, you know, the government just says F it and releases them to the public anyway. However, a lot of the information is still, you know, uh, censored or redacted. Oh, yeah. Those big black blocks on it. Yep. So that's pretty much what declassified documents are. And I guess let's hop right into it and talk about the ones that we picked. Now, who's going to go first? Me or you? Should we do the random morgue or should we just flip a coin? Yeah, let's flip a coin. Do you have a coin? I do not have a coin. You don't have a coin? Okay. All right, we'll just figure it out on random.org. Random.org slash lists. By the way, this is not a sponsored ad by uh, random.org. Just easy to use. All right, Aaron, Dan. Okay, give me a number between 1 through 10, Dan. 9. 9, okay. Give me a number between 1 through 9. 4. 9 minus 4? 5. All right, we're going to randomize it five times. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. All right. First person to go is Dan, and then it's me, and then we'll just rotate, and then we'll go on to our bonus declassified documents. Nice. All right, Dan, so what's the first declassified document that you have for us today? The first one that I have is secret number 1585 that was declassified in October of 2019, a.k.a. Stealing the Lunic. All right, Aaron, have you ever heard of the Lunic? No, I haven't. What is it? It's a space vehicle that the Soviets pretty much built. What year did they build it? Early 1960s. Okay. Well, the Soviet Union had like an exhibition tour through several countries showing off its industrial and economic achievements. You know, it was like, hey, look at my cool stuff that we did and this is what we're proud of. It's like a bunch of industrial machinery, soft goods, models of power stations and nuclear equipment that they had. But... At the very end of the tour, they decided to add a very special item, their Lunik space vehicle. It didn't really say what it was when they delivered it to the people doing the tour. It just said like a special late item. Pretty much you'll figure it out. It came in a crate that was 20 feet long and 11 feet wide with it being about 14 feet high. They ended up taking it out of the crate and placed it on a pedestal which it was a freshly painted space vehicle. There were three inspection windows added to the nose section of it to where you were able to look inside and view the instrument panels inside. So it was a spaceship that was freshly painted and you could like look inside of it and stuff. Yes. Okay. Now, everyone believed that this Lunik was just a mock-up of the original one. And this one was just made for the exhibition. It's like, do you believe that the Soviets at the time would actually bring out their original copy with all the working parts and stuff in it to expose to foreign intelligence, you know, since they're traveling to several countries showing the stuff off? No. Yeah. So the United States intelligence, they were just like, you know, it might be a mock-up, but what if, what if this is the real lunic? So they're just like, oh man, you know what? We need to get a closer look at it. Now, this Lunik had Soviet guards pretty much on it 24-7 while it was on tour. And, you know, you could go in and you could actually kind of view it, you know, from a distance and everything. And, of course, they had the viewing windows you could look inside. But they had stripped most of the wiring out of it. There was no engine to it and all that. So it was just pretty much like a, like a shell, you could say. Now, 
even though it was pretty much empty like that, they still decided to examine it, you know, sending in agents to pretty much view it and all that. And they were still able to, you know, guesstimate, and I say guesstimate, the probable performance, measurements, wiring format, and estimate the engine size. But that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted to get hands on this Lunik space vehicle. Who is they again? The United States Intelligence. Okay. So the U.S. decided, you know what? I want to get my hands on it and I want to dismantle it to figure out more about it. Which this is what this secret document is. It was their plan to steal the Lunik. They gathered a team of four men, pretty much specialists from the Joint Factory Marking Center. And they had like specialized photographic equipment and, you know, their basic tools. They sent this team into whatever country they were at, since it doesn't specify which country, but they had to buy a bunch of like local clothing and stuff to kind of blend in with everybody else so they didn't get spotted. And they started studying the guards' routines and all that to try to figure out how they can get their hands on it. Now, this wasn't something you just go over and steal. It was like, what, 20 feet long, 11 feet wide, 14 feet high? So it wasn't something you just take easily. And it was, of course, guarded, like 24-7. They couldn't just roll it out the door. No. So they had to study the routes and stuff because it was still on tour. And they're going, you know, from place to place around the country. But then once the exhibition tour ended, it was going to be delivered to a station to where then it would be loaded up. And they found out that this Lunik vehicle would be the last one loaded up. So they were just like, you know what? We'll wait, you know, for the driver to get in the vehicle, start driving off, and then we will pretty much take over the truck. So they waited because they found out that the truck delivering it was not going to have any guards or anything around it. You figure something like this, they would have guards on it, but no. It was guarded the whole time on tour, but as soon as it was being delivered to the station, train station, it had no guards. So they were easily able to pretty much kidnap the guy. And from what I hear, they threw a canvas bag over his head or something like that. And they took him to like a different area and they replaced the driver with one of their own. They ended up taking the truck to like a, I want to say like a warehouse area. Actually, no, I take that back. It was a salvage yard and they pretty much backed it into this very tight spot to where it had wooden fence or something all the way around it, but nothing on top. And of course, it was very dark there. The only light that you could see would be from the office. After they parked it there, they waited like a good couple hours or something to make sure that none of the Soviet guards or anything were like following way behind so they wouldn't get caught, which after they waited, no one, no one followed them. So they decided to like get in there, dismantle it and all that. Literally, they dismantle it piece by piece. Once they got all the pictures and stuff that they needed, now they had to put it back together, which they had a little bit of difficulty putting it back together because it just, you know, when you take something out of the box and then when you want to go to put it back in, it never fits the same. Yeah, especially when you don't have instructions. Exactly. So they had a little, little difficulty with that, but they managed. So then they ended up you know, putting everything back together. And it was actually e real easy to take the box apart because back then they just reused the same wooden planks with uh, five-inch spikes in it. So after a while, you know, those holes loosen up, shit's real easy to pop off. So they had no problem taking it out of the box, just putting it back in. But yeah, so they ended up putting everything back together, finally. Ended up having their, I believe their driver, take the truck to the station, which the guy working at the station was only one man, no radio or anything. So he didn't know when the 
when to expect the delivery. So they actually delivered it back the next morning. Station guy had no no idea if it was supposed to be late or not. So he just said, all right, that's cool. And that's pretty much it. The Soviet Union never figured out that they actually stole the Lunik at all. Damn. And it was just four people who disassembled it and reassembled it. Yeah. They must have been quick. I think it probably took them all night, but still, that's still pretty quick. And yeah, it was just like they did all that just to try to find out if it was real and try to figure out more of the specifications of it. It'd be funny if the Soviets like uh, purposely planted that there because they knew that was going to happen. So they have like a little sticker on the inside after you disassemble everything. The little stickers like, ha ha, gotcha. That would be hilarious. But yeah, they said like they never got caught doing it or anything. Damn, that'd make a really good movie. Now, there was one funny part that I read. As they were starting to take it apart, all the streetlights came on and they all thought, oh shit, we're busted. The Soviet, you know, pretty much tracked us down. But no, it was just the streetlights turning on at the normal hour that night. (laughs) So it scared them. I like that one, Dan. Thank you. You're welcome. thought it was funny. All right, so I guess we transition over to my declassified document, which it, uh, it also has to do with the Soviet Union as well. You know, I think we're going to come across a lot of them from the Soviet Union. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my declassified document is called Project Sunstreak. Have you heard about this, Dan? I have not. All right, so to understand this project, we need to go all the way back to the late 1960s. Now, during this time, the CIA started hearing rumors that the Soviet Union was researching and experimenting with psychics. The Soviet Union was kind of looking for a way to use these psychics to spy on other countries. Now, of course, at this time in the 60s, the higher-ups at the CIA heard about this, and they were all kind of like, eh, it's no big deal. What they're doing is a waste of time. It's a waste of money. Psychics don't really exist. At least that's what they thought. Fast forward a few years later to 1970. At this time, the CIA was still secretly monitoring the Soviet Union and tracking what they spent their money on for various things. Now, it was at this time that the CIA discovered that the Soviets were spending around 60 million rubles per year on psychic research. And just a little knowledge nugget, but the 60 million rubles back then in 1970 was around $800,000. And you do some calculations for inflation and everything, and that's around $6 million today. All right? Ooh. And quick question. Dan, do you want to guess how much the United States spent on its military in 1970? How much money it spent on it? $1.3 million? Nope. Higher or lower? Way higher. Just to give you a reference, okay? I'm just going to give you a reference. In 2021... The United States spent $705 billion on the defense budget, all right? So go back to 1970. How much do you think they spent in uh, the defense budget? $175 million. Nope. $95 billion. Oh, my God. Yeah, in 1970, okay? So it wasn't like the Soviets were spending large—I mean, $6 million is a lot of money, you know? Yeah. But— Back then, I mean, the United States saw six million and they were like, they're spending that much in psychic research. Maybe we should kind of monitor this, you know, because it's not a lot, a lot of money, but they are spending money on it. So they actively monitored this amount allocated to psychic research that the Soviets were doing. Well, for the next five years, as the CIA was secretly monitoring them, 
they noticed that the Soviets had increased their spending on psychic research by five times the original amount. It went from 60 million rubles to spending over 300 million rubles per year on it. And this was just on psychic research alone. And it was at this point that the CIA realized, oh shit, the Soviets, you know, they might have had a breakthrough in psychic research and it's probably worth looking into, you know. So the CIA decided to fund a research project called Scan 8, S-C-A-N-A-T-E, a.k.a. Scan by Coordinate. And this Scan by Coordinate project was located in the Stanford Research Institute in California. And just a little knowledge nugget, this Scan by Coordinate project was pretty much a study into remote viewing. And if you don't know what that is, it's pretty much where somebody uses their mind to locate a person or an object somewhere else in the world. That's what pretty much it is. Okay, so this Scan by Coordinate, what they would do, this project, uh, a research team would sit a person down in the room, give them random coordinates of anywhere in the world, and then that person would concentrate on those coordinates and tell the research team what they saw. Now, surprisingly, the people that claimed to be psychics had the ability to do this, remote viewing, and pretty much spy on other countries in real time and tell the researchers what they were seeing, which in turn would tell the military what they were seeing. Now, at this time, the term remote viewing, it didn't even exist. They called it, like we were saying, scan by coordinate. And eventually, uh, two of the scientists there at Stanford, they created the term remote viewing, and they quit calling it scan by coordinate. That's just a little knowledge nugget for you. Oh, I didn't know that. All right, so fast forward to 1977. The Army Assistant Chief of Staff at the time for Intelligence Systems Exploitation Detachment, which that's a long-ass title, so this person ended up uh, deciding to branch off and start a program called Golanda Wish. Have you ever heard about that, Dan? I have not. Neither have I until I read into this. So this Golanda Wish program, uh, its purpose was to evaluate potential adversary applications of remote viewing. Pretty much to sniff out anybody that says uh, remote viewing on them. So pretty much they're kind of like, hey, this is our defense force, this Golanda Wish. And then a year later, this Golanda Wish project was retitled to Project Grill Flame, which I know you know what Grill Flame is, right? You've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then over the next few years, this project, you know, it would shift its focus and funding and it would become Project Centerline and then a bunch of other ones. And then it finally became Project Sunstreak. Now, a little side note real quick. There are a lot of different projects that have to do with remote viewing, astral projection, psychics, and all that stuff with the government. You know, there's a whole bunch of various different projects. Like we talked about Galanda Wish, Project Grill Flame, all the other ones, you know. They all have a parent title, which is called Project Stargate. That is what all of them fall underneath, okay? So just an FYI going forward. And I know you've heard of Project Stargate, Dan. Yes. All right, so we're going to concentrate on Project Sunstreak. And this is where shit gets really weird, okay? So this entire project was pretty much looked after and ran by a guy named Major General Albert Stubblebine. Now, this Major Albert was a pretty weird dude. For an example, he was known to gather all of his staff and all of his soldiers together. He would gather them all up in a room, and then he would say, 
okay, everybody sit down. They would all sit down. Then he would walk around the room and hand every single person a metal spoon. He would then tell them, he would say, hey, my staff and soldiers, I want you all to be very quiet. And I want you to stare at your spoons and try to bend them by just using your mind. This happened so much that people started calling these sessions that he'd gather everybody up in the room spoon bending sessions. Like when he'd call a gathering, everybody would be like, oh shit, we're having a spoon bending session. Another thing that this Major Albert did is that he would gather up his generals and he would take them to a small fire that he had built outside. The Major would then tell his generals to take their shoes and their socks off and to walk through the fire barefoot. And his generals would be like, why the hell would we walk through the fire barefoot? And then the major would say, look, when you walk through the fire barefoot, it taps your inner wisdom that is overall going to help you in the battlefield. And of course, they, they did it. And there's another random knowledge nugget that's pretty weird. But this major Albert uh, in the 1980s, he got into some trouble. He was sending some of his men to the Monroe Institute to practice hemisync which we talk about hemisync in a previous episode a while, while back. Way back. So Major Albert would send his men to practice this hemisync so that they could kind of trigger out-of-body experiences. Now, one of these men that he sent to this institute actually went crazy during one of these hemisync sessions, and he ended up leaving the facility, and he was found wandering around completely naked and rambling nonsense. And it was kind of a big deal. It caused some trouble for Major Albert. Like he got a few spankings because of it. I wonder if they made him walk through fire as well. Probably. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this Major Albert was, like I said, the one leading this Project Sunstreak. And as crazy as he may sound, the declassified documents of this project and its findings were pretty amazing, to say the least. So this project concentrated on remote viewing and it was pretty successful. For an example, the psychics that were involved in this project were first tested, and during this test, they were asked various questions about what information was inside of classified envelopes, which they had no clue, because these people weren't military at all. They were just regular citizens who claimed to be psychics and claimed that they could remote view, so they didn't have any idea what was inside these classified envelopes. But using the remote viewing powers, they were able to uh, describe accurately what was inside of those envelopes. So then after that, they were asked to describe locations that they weren't familiar with, in which they described accurately, because supposedly they were able to remote view and go to those locations and say, hey, it looks like this, this, and this. Not only that, the military started using these psychics to remote view and find hostages around the world in which they were pretty successful in doing. So it wasn't like this Project Sunstreak was a failure because they were having some like, oh, look, we're seeing this crazy shit happen and we can't really explain, you know? And this is all detailed in the declassified documents. Another thing that these documents talk about is an individual named Ed Dames. Do you have any idea who this dude is, Dan? No. Okay. Well, let me hit you with some knowledge nuggets because this guy was pretty weird, all right? All right. So this Ed Dames guy was one of the individuals, along with Major Albert, who kind of like monitored and oversaw most of Project Sunstreak's remote viewing sessions. 
Ed started seeing like how successful these sessions were. And at the time, some of the psychics were stating that they were able to leave their bodies during these remote viewing sessions and explore places outside of themselves, aka astral projection. So with remote viewing, you're just viewing locations. With astral projection, you're able to leave your body pretty much and travel around freely, not just view stationary areas. All right, so Ed heard about this astral projection, and it kind of sparked his curiosity. So he started diving into remote viewing and astral projection himself, and he was able to do it. However, it wasn't good enough for him. He wanted to push the boundaries of remote viewing, but not for the military, but for his curiosity about weird and strange things. And this is where some weird claims start happening in these documents. So in these documents, it states that Ed started to remote view for long periods of time and started to make claims that during these periods, he was able to leave the planet Earth. And not only that, but he was able to leave the current time period as well. Now, during these sessions, Ed claimed that he was able to see the fall of Atlantis. And he also claimed that he had found Loch Ness Monster, which he stated later on that the Loch Ness Monster wasn't actually a creature, but it was a ghost of a dinosaur, which kind of takes away from your credibility, Ed, but whatever. Uh, another thing that Ed claimed was that he encountered UFOs and Martians during his sessions. All right, so that's Ed, and he was off doing his own thing, doing his own remote viewing and, you know, all this other shit. And these experiments with these psychics, you know, they continued on. And uh, two of these psychics kind of stood out from the rest of them. And they were two women who ended up getting the nickname The Witches. Now, these two women preferred not to call what they were doing remote viewing. But instead, they insisted that it was called channeling. So these two women not only did remote viewing, a.k.a. channeling, but they would also go around to various military officials and do tarot card readings and make predictions about their personal lives and endeavors in which they were often right. So it kind of like built up their reputation around the base and with the military officials. And they were like, hey, man, these witches, you know, we like them. All right. So this remote viewing was pretty successful. Many of the psychics were able to locate bombs, people and predict certain events, which begs the question, if it was so successful, why was it shut down? Well, the CIA appointed a guy named Ray Hyman, and he came in and evaluated certain projects that the CIA was working on. Now, one of those projects that he evaluated was Project Sunstreak, a.k.a. Project Stargate. And he stated that this project had done nothing to help the government, intelligence agencies, or military organizations. So in 1995, the project was terminated and declassified. And that is Project Sunstreak. And just a little rumor real quick, even though the project was shut down, there's like some rumors and theories and kind of like talks going around that the psychics didn't actually leave. They kind of stayed behind, those quote-unquote witches. They stayed behind, and they're currently still working on various secret projects there at some of the bases. Oh. But that's just some rumors. Anyways, that's my first declassified document. I like that one. 
figured, you know, I'd bring that, bring a little bit of, you know, remote viewing, stuff like that. People like that. Give them what they want. All right. So, you know, next time we get together, we're going to have a, you know, session before we start doing our work. We're all going to have spoons and yeah, see if we can bend them. With our mind. Yep. Sounds good. Then we'll go outside and we're not going to walk across fire. We're just going to walk across uh, the grass. I'm going to walk across fire. <laughs> hey, real quick. Uh, I went to my grandfather's memorial this past weekend, which I hate going to anything like that. But I went and paid my respects. And I saw a uh, person that I knew from a long time ago uh, who was a friend of my uncle's. And he ended up, uh, when he was younger, they built a big bonfire. And he tried jumping over the bonfire and fell in and got burns all over his body. Oh. And he said the, the most painful thing he'd ever had to experience in his life was when they would come in, the nurses, and scrub his burns. It's like, damn, dude. Ugh. I bet that did hurt. Just a little random knowledge nugget. All right, moving forward. Dan, tell us about this next declassified document that you are covering. All right. So, like you said from our previous declassified document episode, one of them was called Acoustic Kitty, which do you remember what that one was about? Wasn't it where the United States government tried to see if they could turn cats into basically spying tools where they put like a... I don't know, microphones on them and had them walk up to certain officials. Yep. Okay. Yep, that's exactly it. Which, of course, didn't work out so well. I have something similar to that. Have you heard of Project X-Ray? And no, it does not involve X-rays at all. No, I've, I've never heard of it. Okay, before we get into our next declassified document, we are going to take a quick break. Be right back. Do you follow automotive news or do you just like cars and want to see what the heck's going on? Well, then you might like Donut Media's new podcast, The Big Three. Hi, I'm James Pumphrey. And every week, me and my co-host slash two of my top five friends, Nolan Sykes and Joe Weber, unpack the latest and greatest in automotive news and trends on The Big Three. You'll also get a lot of laughs, hot takes, and personal insight on cars from the biggest car guys in automotive media. So, whether you're a hardcore enthusiast or just a person who goes, up, that's a good-looking car, <laughs> check out The Big Three, available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can watch the full videos at Donut Podcasts on YouTube. All right, we're back. So you know when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, you know, December 7th, 1941? Yep. It was right after that. Everybody in the United States was angry. Many people were enlisting, swore that they'll get back at Japan for doing it. But there was one man, a dentist who was friends, well, not really friends, but more of an acquaintance with Eleanor Roosevelt. And his name was Dr. Little S. Adams. Instead of enlisting and everything, he decided to write a letter like many thousands of other people did with ideas on how to get back at Japan. Now. He had just recently come back from a trip to Carlsbad Cavern National Park in New Mexico. And in a 1948 interview, so this was years later, he said that I had just been to the caverns in New Mexico and had been tremendously impressed by the bat flight. Couldn't those millions of bats be fitted with incendiary bombs and dropped from planes? What could be more devastating than such a firebomb attack? So do you see where I'm going with this? <laughs> Bat bombs, pretty much? Bat bombs. Oh, my God. So in that letter that he wrote to the White House, 
he wrote in great detail how they could strap tiny, tiny incendiary bombs to those bats who would then carry the bombs into all the nooks and crannies of Japan. Now, you got to remember, back then, most of the Japanese homes and buildings were made of wood, bamboo, and paper. So incendiary explosions could cause a ton of wildfires back then. Everything would just friggin' go up in flames. How his letter actually got so much attention, people say it's because, you know, he knew Eleanor Roosevelt, or someone reading the letter was just like, oh, this is such a great idea. We gotta, you know, do something with this. So either way, the idea was actually approved by President Roosevelt. So they actually proceeded with this idea, and they actually had Dr. Adams come in and be the lead on this project. He suggested that they go to the caverns in New Mexico and try to capture some of the bats so they can do some studies on it. He stated that there were like over nearly a thousand species of bats around the world, and they can live up to 30 years or so. And most common one in North America is the free-tailed or the guano bat. And he said they weigh about nine grams and they can carry about three times their own weight. So that leads to April 16th, 1942, when they actually started the research on how to gather the bats, and they titled the research, Use of Bats as Vectors of Incendiary Bombs. And of course, they go through great detail on how they're going to use the bats, and they would actually release the bats at night. So these bats would just go spread around, get into the nooks and crannies of all these homes and buildings, and then later on, they would be detonated to where they would just light everything on fire. You know, on the surface, that's a pretty good idea. I don't condone that violence, but when you think about ideas, that's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one. But they decided to pick the Mexican free-tailed bats, and they collected like, because uh, there was like around 20 to 30 million of them. So they went to this one cave called, uh, it's a NEY cave, so Ney cave. But they collected a bunch of bats to, you know, do studies on them because they needed to find a way to strap an incendiary bomb to the bats to where they're still able to fly and everything. So they ended up designing two different bombs. One was designed and it weighed about 17 grams and would burn for four minutes with a 10 inch flame. The other one was a tad heavier at 28 grams and would burn for about six minutes with a 12 inch flame. And, the, you know, the bombs were oblong shaped and whatnot, and they had a kerosene in the center of it. That on the side of these little bomb casings would be a small time-delayed igniter, which was made from a firing pin held in tension against a spring by a thin steel wire. Then a copper chloride solution would be injected into the cavity to corrode the wire to activate the incendiary bomb. So they go, like, they had this stuff all planned out. It's like once the wire was corroded entirely, the firing pin would snap forward and strike the igniter head. And then, of course, the spark would then ignite the kerosene. And then, boom, you got flames. Those poor bats. <laughs> Those poor bats. <laughs> yep. Now, how they would attach these little bombs to these bats, they said they pinched away about one half inch of loose skin from their chest and inserted a surgical clip and a piece of string. Now, you got to be thinking, how are they going to transport these bats all together to where they're not just flying around, probably setting off these little bombs themselves? Well, they ended up creating a big bomb casing that they would have, but 
it had like a bunch of holes in it. So it was like a really bomb cage. But how do you get all of them in there without them trying to fly off and stuff? They ended up putting these bats in refrigerators to force them into a hibernation. (laughs) My God. (laughs) Now, (laughs) honestly, for back then, you know, don't come on violence or anything like that. But it sounds like a great plan that it could really work, you know, if you wanted to spread fire and stuff. But they ran into a ton of problems. (laughs) And I shouldn't laugh, but this part, it really does get you to giggle. The main problem was that after they got the bats to hibernate, they loaded them up into this bomb cage. They would fly over their target. So they were doing some practice runs and that they would drop this bomb cage. And after, you know, dropping for a while, a parachute would come out of it to slow its descent. And the cage would open up, which would then release all these bats. Now, the problem with that is that these were bats that were still hibernating. They were hoping by the time that they reached their destination that they would wake up, but they didn't. So when this cage would open up, all of these hibernating bats would literally just plummet to the ground and die. Oh my God. So it's like they have to get it out of hibernation. Well, They couldn't really figure that out. But, you know, while they were still trying to figure out ways to test this, they had another accident. Somebody accidentally released a bunch of the bats that had bombs attached to them, which led to the air base (laughs) in New Mexico catching a couple buildings on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. So their plan to catch buildings on fire literally worked, but at their own air base. Now, the Air Force was in charge of this project. I should have said that earlier, but they were in charge with it. But by 1943, they just said, F it. We don't want this no more. So they passed the project over to the Marine Corps, which then they named it Project X-Ray. And of course, they did, you know, some more tests involving fake Japanese cities. And, you know, they said that they had positive results. You know, they, they did what they were supposed to. But they ended up canceling the project after 30 demonstrations and $2 million later. Which, pretty much right after they canceled this, they created the atomic bomb instead. And that right there is Project X-Ray. <laughs> that is, like, the weirdest, most, like, almost great idea you could have. Right? Like, if they pull it off, it's like, wow, great job. But, as you can see, they didn't pull it off, and it just went down horribly yeah bats either plummeted to their death or someone accidentally released them and it catches their own base on fire (laughs) jesus well i'm glad we've moved on from that right man i don't know they they might still be trying to test it because they said it was a great idea just they couldn't do it right well (laughs) i really like that one it gave me a chuckle right oh the things people do man yep and I wish my next one would give us a chuckle, but it's not going to. Oh, so mine should have been last, right? <laughs> well, we do have like two bonus ones, and I made sure the last one was pretty funny. So, yeah, we don't have to end on a depressing one. All right, that sounds good then. <laughs> All right, so my next declassified document is not nearly as long as my first one, okay? So, Dan, have you heard of Project 4.1? No. All right, well, you're in for a treat. Oh, I'm ready. Okay, before we get into that next declassified document, we're going to take a quick break 
We'll be right back. All right, welcome back. So to understand this project, we have to go back to 1946. So during that year, the United States decided that they wanted to start conducting nuclear weapon tests on warships. Like they were done dropping them on land. They got enough data from that. They wanted to drop them and see how they affected warships, you know. And to do this, they needed to find an island where they could gather multiple warships around and then they could drop a nuke on that island and see how it affected the warships around that island. So the United States started looking around and they eventually chose the Bikini Atoll, which is one of the islands that are a part of the Marshall Islands. Now this Marshall Islands, just a little FYI, is an independent island country near the equator in the Pacific Ocean. And the total number of islands in that area are an assload, okay? The total number of people that live on these Marshall Islands is around 58,413. Kind of gives you, you know, some information to work off of as we go forward. All right. So in 1946, the United States went to the Bikini Atoll and said, hey, which the Bikini Atoll is pretty much a small island, said, hey, everyone here, I need you to gather up. All right. We need this area, this island, uh, because we're going to drop a bomb on it. All right. However, um, everybody that's here, you all have to leave. But hey, good news. You can go to the atoll nearby. Okay. We're going to drop you off to the, the island next door. Okay. And when we're done dropping bombs, we'll come pick you guys back up. We'll drop you back off on your original island that we just bombed. Wait, 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 wait. You said they were doing nuclear testing? Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah. The residents there, of course, they didn't know what the hell nuclear bombs were, which I don't blame them because they're fairly new back then, right? Not saying that they were stupid. They were just not aware of what they were. They just thought they were regular bombs. They were like, eh, okay, whatever. So the residents agreed. They packed their shit up, and they went to their new home, which was an island next door. And just a little FYI, this island that they were sent to next door, it didn't produce nearly enough food to cover all of them. So a lot of people that ended up being relocated to this island ended up starving. Now, the ones who did survive and didn't starve, they couldn't return back home after the testing was done. And I'll talk more about that here in a little bit. But they all ended up relocating to another island that had a lot of food, so they ended up surviving and all that good stuff. All right, so let's talk about this Project uh, 4.1. So between 1946 to 1958, the United States dropped 23 nuclear bombs on those islands. So now that we have like an understanding of what happened between those time periods, let's talk about what happened on March 1st, 1954, which is what this entire Project 4.1 is about. So, of course, during this time period, March 1st, 1954, they were in the middle of testing nukes in the Marshall Islands. And most of these nukes that they tested, they were pretty normal ones. However, they had just recently developed the new thermonuclear bomb. And they were like, we got to test this baby out. Jesus, this is where it gets bad, okay? So on March 1st, 1954, they dropped that bitch on Bikini Atoll, that thermonuclear bomb. Now, initially, this device wasn't supposed to be that big of a bomb. Scientists who actually developed it said, hey, it's going to be around six megatons of TNT. That's how big the explosion is. The military was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. That's perfect. 
However, when they blew it up, the yield of the bomb ended up being 15 megatons of TNT, which was 2.4 times the original amount. And this ended up being the most powerful nuclear device ever detonated by the United States. Of course, when it went off and the United States realized, holy shit, it's 2.4 times the original amount, they were like, this is not good. This large explosion caused huge amounts of radioactive contamination to be spread in large areas on the other surrounding islands where a lot of the people lived. And guess what? What? The residents of those islands weren't even told about it. I mean, they could clearly see that the bomb went off, but they were used to it by then, right? They were testing all the time. But they didn't know that they just had an assload of radioactive fallout just rain down on them. And uh, they weren't evacuated from their island until three days later when they started uh, experiencing radiation sickness. And something else that happened is that when this thermonuclear bomb was detonated, there was a Japanese fishing vessel nearby. And it was caught in that fallout. 23 crew members on that fishing vessel experienced super bad radiation sickness. And they were like, we don't know what it's from. But we suspect it's from this giant-ass bomb that went off next to us. <laughs> United States is like, oh, we don't know what you're talking about. Damn. All right. Just a little FYI, too, going forward. The fallout from this thermonuclear bomb wasn't just to those islands nearby. This fallout spread around the world. However, no one except the United States at the time knew what happened. So the United States, of course, was like, hey, we can't let a good tragedy go to waste. Let's do some studying. So they created Project 4.1, which was a top-secret medical study and experimentation that was conducted by the United States on those residents of the Marshall Islands that were exposed to the radioactive fallout. Now, the official explanation for this project was to, and I quote, study of response of human beings exposed to significant beta and gamma radiation due to fallout from high-yield weapons. It's pretty messed up, right? I mean, you figured they would provide aid to those citizens. Instead, they're like, hey, let's study them under the guise of it being aid. And to make it even more messed up, it was classified as secret, this Project 4.1. And the reason it was classified as secret was because, and I quote, and this is straight from the documents, the project is classified secret restricted data due to possible adverse public reaction. You will specifically instruct all personnel in this project to be particularly careful not to discuss the purpose of this project and its background or findings with any except those who have specific need to know. So they were just worried about public reaction. They didn't want no blowback. So they're like, let's keep it a secret. So after these documents and this project 4.1 was declassified, the findings in it stated that uh, 239 individuals on various islands were exposed to significant levels of radiation ranging from 175 rads to 69 rads total. And uh, 28 Americans that were stationed on an island nearby were exposed to 78 rads, which 
that's pretty much my project 4.1, but I do go over like the meaning of rads and kind of go into that. Cause I mean, most people, when you talk about rads, they're like, oh, okay, cool. 175 rads doesn't sound like a lot. Well, it is. That's a shit ton. Yeah. So to wrap this up, I'm going to hit you with some knowledge nuggets about rads and radiation and units of measurement. Okay. So the term rad is basically the name of a unit that's pretty much absorbed radiation dose. So when someone says, hey, I got one rad, it means that they've absorbed one rad of radiation dose to their body. Now, there's different types of radiation, but I'm not going to get into that right now. It could get pretty confusing. I just want to talk about the term rad and how much you can take before you die. So in terms of radiation, as Dan knows, and some of you may know as well, some of you listeners, we're exposed to radiation all the time even with us not even knowing. Almost all the time, there are low doses that don't affect us at all. Eating a banana. Yeah, eating a banana, getting on a plane flight, uh, getting a CT scan. So we're exposed to, each year, 0.62 rem, a.k.a. 0.62 rad, each year, naturally. So not even one full rad. Now, how many of these rads do we need to be exposed to to start feeling some effects? Between 1 to 24 rads, nothing really changes. You can receive 24 rem and you'll be fine. Now, around 25 rads is when there is some observable changes in your blood. However, it's pretty minimal and you won't likely feel any different. Now, when you get up to like 100 to 200 rad and you have that delivered to your entire body in less than a day, like if you absorb 100 to 200 rad to your entire body this might give you acute radiation syndrome like you'll feel like shit you'll start losing your hair coughing up blood stuff like that but it's not usually fatal the fatal range is usually over 400 rad when that is delivered to your entire body and this puts you in the category of ld50 which ld50 stands for lethal dose and it's pretty much just hey it means you have a 50 percent chance of living if you get 400 rad the 50-50 chance you're going to survive. Now, when you get a dose of 1,000 rad delivered to your entire body, that puts you in the category of LD100. Basically, LD100 means your bitch ass is dead. You have a 100% chance of dying within the next few weeks of radiation poisoning. And it's not going to be a pretty way to go. It's one of the worst ways to die. You suffer for the next few weeks. Your organs start shutting down. It's horrible. So the people in the islands around there received 175 rads. I mean, it is a lot. And I think the most messed up part about this is it being hid from those people and them not being told what happened to them. So yeah, that's Project 4.1. Nuclear question. 1,000 millirem is one rim, right? Yep, 1,000 millirem is one rim, which is also one rad. That, that was usually our... Unit of measurement. Yearly limit, too. Well, it depended. Like, contractors had different yearly limits than regular house workers. Yeah, ours was a thousand rim, or millirim. Yeah, I think the most I've ever received in one single jump, a little over 200 millirim, which is like 0.2 rad, which is barely even anything. Yeah, I think that's, that was actually probably close to my highest as well. That was under vessel too. Like, I was under the actual vessel. Anyways, enough of nuclear talk. I'm done with that for my entire life. I'll never go back again. As I just put away my NUF cram study book. 
I threw away all my scrubs, all my uh, books, all my certificates, everything. It's all gone. You know, I kept some of my scrubs just because they're good for, you know, working on vehicles and stuff. You don't care about getting them dirty. Yeah, that's true. All right. So let's go into these next two bonus declassified documents, which these are not as dark as our topics. So tell us about this first one, Dan. All right. So our first bonus declassified document is about the Indonesian president. So when the CIA wants to get rid of another country's leader, they will often go to insane lengths to do so. Now, it is proven that the CIA has played a role in a number of South American coups, you know, a.k.a. taking over the government. However, what happened to the former president of Indonesia was just a little bit stranger than most of the other plans they had. In the 1950s, the CIA devised a plan that they called X-Rated Film Project. So, rather than just arming rebels, like the CIA usually does, they instead decided to get someone who looked exactly like the president of Indonesia at the time and make an X-rated film of him. Now, the idea behind it was that it'll show that a woman had gotten the better of the Indonesian president. And the CIA thought that this would bring shame and embarrassment to him, eventually causing him to leave office. However, it backfired. So after the film was done, instead of leaking it, they figured that they would first show it to the president of Indonesia as a blackmail tactic to get him to work with them. So the president of Indonesia was invited to a small private movie theater and showed him the pornographic video in which he was playing the main part. The agents were expecting him to get really frightened that he would agree to cooperate with them at once. But everything happened vice versa. He was ecstatic and thought it was instead a gift, and he even asked for more copies to take them back to Indonesia and show them in movie theaters. <laughs> Imagine that, spending all that time on that project thinking, yeah, we're really going to blackmail this president, and they have to find an actor that looks like him and then shoot the pornographic film and then end up showing it to him, only for him to be like, oh, can I have copies of this? <laughs> I want to show my country. Man, I look really good on camera. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's oh my. probably one of the funniest declassified documents. That's hilarious. The yeah. Uh, the fact that they would actually try to do that and then they just, the guy's literally just like, can I get more copies? Yeah, yeah. I want my people to see how good I am. <laughs> I want to shake your hand. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, so let's go on to this last bonus declassified document, which is a pretty short one. And uh, it's part of the transcript from the Apollo 10 crew. Now, initially, I thought, ooh, a classified Apollo 10 transcript. Did they see aliens? Did they talk about them? Is that why it was classified? No. They, they talked about shit. <laughs> like, literal shit. They saw a foreign <laughs> object, okay? <laughs> so this transcript is of someone in the crew basically shitting in the shuttle and them talking about it as it was floating around. Oh, my goodness. It's a real short one. So it says, Eagle, we got you now. It's looking good. Over. Who did it? Who did what? Where did that come from? Give me a napkin quick. There's a turd floating through the air. I didn't do it. It ain't one of mine. I don't think it's one of mine. 
Mine was a little more sticky than that. Throw that away. God almighty. Roger. That's the actual transcript. Someone shit in the shuttle and it floated around. Oh my God. Oh God. Give me a napkin quick. <laughs> oh boy. Just floating around in space. Next thing you know, you just see a turd just flying through space in the shuttle. Oh. So that's our last declassified document. You know, we talked about borrowing Ludnik, Project X-Ray, Project Sunstreak, Project 4.1 the Indonesian president, and someone shitting in Apollo 10. And not in the dedicated spot. No. So do you have anything else that you want to add to this Declassified Documents 2 episode before we go into our On the Scene this week? Uh, no. No, I'm good. All right. Well, that's the end of our episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. We're now going to transition to our On the Scene. So if you're unfamiliar with what our On the Scene is, uh, it is where an individual... It could be a listener, it could be anybody around the world, goes up and asks random individuals or family members or whomever random questions about certain theories or conspiracies and gets their thoughts about them. Now, anyone can do this. It can be even you, the listener, listening to this right now. Just get your phone out, walk up to somebody, ask them some questions, make sure the audio is less than two minutes long, and then send it to either one of our emails which is uh, Aaron at theoriesofthethirdkind.com, or you can send it to Dan at theoriesofthethirdkind.com, and it will be put in our queue to play. All right, so this week we have an on-the-scene from Samantha, and she is interviewing her son, Zay. So we'll play that right now. We are here on the scene with Isaiah Zay, and he is going to answer some questions for us. So, Zay, I was wondering if you believe in aliens. Yes, I do. I, f I believe that something's out there living that it, we um, that are waiting to come down or we are looking for. Have you ever had any personal experiences with any UFOs or aliens? No, not really. It's... Um, Kind of an odd thing. Sometimes I see, like, little sphere-type things floating around, but sometimes they're just planes or something like that. Mm -hmm. What about um, conspiracy theories or spirits, ghosts? Do you believe in all of that stuff? Or Yeah, I believe in ghosts. I believe in all that stuff. Um, I feel like that people can come down and manifest the things that they want or was special to them or how they what something important to them they come down there and like manifest it and stuff like that all right awesome thank you very much thanks for your time today okay you too i like that you know what i like that too so in the email that she sent she said her son was 11 and I hope that's okay to say, because I just want to prove a point again. Last week, we had Jacob with his son, Andrew, and uh, they were both very articulate. And this week, we got Samantha with her son, Zay. And Zay might be, you know, three years younger than my son, but way smarter and way more articulate. What's going on here? I, I don't know. <laughs> like I said last week, I go up to my son and I ask him things. I'm like, hey, what do you think of aliens? They're cool, I guess. Well, uh, what'd you do in school today? Oh, nothing. Is anything going on in your life? I don't know. 
Damn. <laughs> I'm just here, Dad. <laughs> yeah, I'm just existing. Oh, man. But yeah, thank you, Samantha and Zay, for that wonderful on the scene. I love it. Submit another one, and we'll get it right back in the lineup. Yes, thank you. All right, so let's see. I guess we move on to shout-outs, which I'm going to move majority of my shout-outs to next week, but I do have two shout-outs I want to give real quick, if that's okay, Dan, before we move on to your shout-outs. Yeah, that's fine. All right. So the first shout-out I want to give is to Tosh. It's her, well, her birthday was last week, and we missed it. Oh. Thanks a lot, Dan. Hey, she was actually one of my shout-outs. I told her we've already recorded, but we could do a belated birthday shout-out. Okay. Well, happy birthday to you. I hope it was great. I hope it was wonderful. And you know what? Dan told me earlier, uh, and I totally forgot about it, that uh, he was going to serenade you. Okay? So go ahead, Dan. Sing. Really? Yeah. You said you were going to. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Yeah, that's it. Happy birthday, Tosh. <laughs> oh, I was gonna, you're going to continue. I was going to be a background guy. All right. Well, happy birthday. I hope it was uh, good. You know, and I'm sorry we missed it. But here it is. You know, better late than never. Boom. The next shout out I want to give is to Lisa B. Her birthday is today, actually, when she's listening, April 28th. She's currently flying home listening to this. I want you to do something for me real quick, Lisa. I want you to unplug your AirPods, and I want you to put your phone on speaker, okay? I'll, I'll give you a few seconds, all right? Okay, now that your phone is on speaker, I want you to turn it as loud as you can in the middle of the flight. Attention, everyone. I want to let you know that this lady has a bomb. She has a bomb. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I really hope you didn't do that, okay? We love you. We're proud of you. Happy birthday. Dan, again, just like, you know, Tasha's, he stated that, hey, he was going to sing for you. So give it to her. Dan, take it away. Man, I'm glad you remember these things. I don't remember saying any of this. Must be a Mandela effect. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Lisa. Happy birthday. Keep going. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Lisa. Happy birthday. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope it's good. I hope your plane flight's going good. I hope it doesn't crash and you end up like uh, in the forest with a hatchet and you have to survive and chop down trees and build a fort so that these cannibals don't come from uh, in the ground and try to kill you. Ah, the forest. Yeah, great game. Anyway, but yeah. Those are my two shout-outs for this week. Everybody's getting moved to next week besides those two. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and do the same, but I will add another birthday shout-out then. Ooh, okay. Happy birthday to Jordan. Today is her birthday as well. I believe she turns 28. Nice. Congratulations on turning 28. You're almost 30. And Aaron said that he would serenade you this time. As a matter of fact, I did. Because you know what? Here you go. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> We're keeping that in. Yeah, we'll keep it in. I don't give a shit. At this point in my life, I'm just working on my happiness. That's all I'm working towards. I just want to be happy. That's all that matters, man. Yep, and I think the root of not being happy is caring what others think about you, ultimately. Which, I mean, to a point you have to care, but then there's a point to where you care too much, right? Yeah, there's a limit. Like, if this shirt fits me good, and it doesn't offend anybody, and I wear it, I shouldn't care what other people think. As long as it's comfortable and I like it, I should be able to wear it. I should be able to be my own person. And that's what I'm working towards, you know, my own happiness. There it is. All right. Well, do you have anything else you want to talk about or say before we end this episode? 
No. I mean, unless anybody else has any funny declassified documents they want to talk about, let us know. Yeah. If you come across any funny ones, send us an email and let us know. We'd love to hear about it. All right. Well, with that being said, I want to thank you for joining. Oh, God. You think after doing this for how many episodes have we done? 130 something and then plus the Patreon, like over almost 250 episodes. I would have it down by now, but apparently I don't. I have like the easiest part. So, yeah, I got my part down. You want me to switch it up? Do you want me to do it today? <laughs> Go ahead. Roll us out, Dan. Go ahead. All right. I want to thank you for joining us today. And again, thank you for the support. You all are amazing. Every single one of you. So with that being said, Aaron, you want to roll us out? Absolutely. It's okay to be out of this world with your thoughts. Because you are not alone. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.